Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. It is now over eight years since protests leading up to the war in Yemen began to unseat former President Saleh and over four years since the Saudi and Emirati coalition began its indiscriminate bombing campaign against the Iranian-backed Ansar Allah movement. War crimes have been committed by all sides to this conflict. Funeral homes, wedding processions, a school bus, an elementary school and a hospital are amongst the clearly civilian sites that have been bombed and shelled. Religious and cultural sites have been hit and destroyed. The US, the UK and France, amongst others, have profited from this conflict by the sale and perhaps the testing of their weapons, which they have sold to the Saudi coalition. Many schools have closed down and the students that have continued to attend school run the risk of their schools being bombed or shelled or being forcibly recruited into the war. Landmines plague the land and kill and maim. Journalists and other members of society are arbitrarily detained and sentenced for supposed sedition against the armed groups in control. Yemen, a food insecure country largely dependent on imports due to Western international trade policies before the war, has been blockaded and starved. Millions are at risk from dying of starvation. Cholera and diphtheria are epidemics with inadequate medical supplies to quell them and just keep getting worse. And the U.S. continues its cruel and arrogant drone strikes, which continue to kill innocent Yemenis in the name of counterterrorism, serving only to increase distrust of the U.S. Yet, there is hope. The recent ceasefire may soon end hostilities and Yemen may start to rebuild its state. During all this time, 71 brave people working with the Yemeni human rights organization, Muatana, have worked diligently to provide legal representation to those detained advocate for peace domestically and internationally, and document the human rights abuses and war crimes in Yemen. I spoke to its founder and director, Radia Al-Mutawakel, on these issues and more. Well, welcome to Gravity, Radia. Thank you. Mwatana, which means citizenship, is an independent Yemeni organization that defends human rights. Mwatana has documented human rights violations, provided legal support to and representation of persons that have had their human rights violated, and advocates for change to promote peace and human rights in Yemen. May you please elaborate more on the establishment of Mwatana, its goals and activities? Yeah, well, Mwatana has um, has been established in 2007, but we never got the legal permission until 2013. By then, uh, the founders of Muadana had had the chance to to develop uh, experience from working with many international NGOs. So one of the main things that Muadana is doing is documenting the violations by all parties to the conflict because we consider the information as a power uh, toward any advocacy or accountability uh, work uh, whether now or in the future and we trying to do like um, uh, a human rights memory so we keep developing our uh, tools uh, and our way of working just to make our information stronger that can be brought in the future to the court and also beside then we publish we publish uh, uh, reports, statements, and uh, we do documentary films also. Beside the documentation, we also do uh, uh, like a, a legal support. Uh, we have lawyers 
uh, in different governorates who are those who are following daily uh, after the cases of detention and forced disappearance by all parties to the conflict. And regarding the documentation, I forgot to say that we have field researchers in 20 governorates in Yemen, 20 out of 22. Uh, so when we say that we have documented this incidence, it means that we, our field researcher went to the site and did a lot of interviews and many work in the field. And uh, beside of this, we do a lot of advocacy work, whether by internationally, whether by meetings, interviews, but also by uh, in, uh, being engaged in the Human Rights Council, um, in the Security Council in different levels. Uh, and we do it with many international partners uh, in different levels. Um, beside that, I mean, the training and awareness working that we are doing. It's now over eight years since protests leading up to the war began to unseat former President Saleh and over four years since the Saudi and United Arab Emirates coalition began its indiscriminate bombing campaign against the Iranian-backed Ansala movement. It's like Yemen is a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And with war crimes that have been committed by all sides to this conflict and the international community has been complicit in this by its continued hypocritical condemnation of the war, whilst it has supported it through arms sales. Do you have faith in recent discussions for a ceasefire and, and the recent purported ceasefire and an end to this conflict? Well, uh, the last peace process that happened in Sweden, actually, in spite of all the challenges uh, that is facing, is still the most serious um, uh, opportunities toward peace that happened since the beginning of the war. And uh, for example, just yesterday, those uh, uh, employees in the, in the, health, uh, the health services, they received their salaries the first time since many years. Um, it's a very small thing. It doesn't solve anything, but it's just a, a positive indicator that when parties to the conflict uh, receive a balanced pressure from the international community, they can go forward and they could, can do something. So it's a momentum. Uh, and yes, I'm optimistic. Only if the pressure continue from the international community to, to protect and to keep the peace process, uh, peace process going on. Uh, but if it happened that the pressure from the international community became just like a fashion. It happened only after the Khashoggi murder, and then it went, it went down. Then we will start from the scratch, and the situation is going to be even much worse, because parties to the conflict will say, uh, yeah, we have already uh, experienced uh, or, or tried to do peace and nothing happened. I'm very optimistic, but I'm, so, I'm scared uh, of that. Uh, at the same time, to lose this opportunity. And for the international community, they were engaged in the war by fueling the war by selling weapons, but there was also uh, political and other kind of support for some parties to the conflict uh, negatively. While the international community can do much better than this, not only by stop selling weapons, but by being engaged positively to lead Yemen to a real peace process. According to the Yemen Data Project, there have been over 18,500 air raids conducted by Saudi and Emirati aircraft 
which averages to about 14 attacks daily since the coalition began to bomb Yemen. And almost, a th- and again, according to the Yemen Data Project, almost a third of these attacks have been on civilian targets, including residences, cultural centers, schools, hospitals, a school bus, water and transport infrastructure, weddings, funerals. They've all been targets of bombing. The coalition has also used cluster bombs, which are indiscriminate in their infection and often result in killing and maiming children who mistake bomblets that fail to initially deploy as toys. The Houthis and other parties to the conflict have also targeted civilian objects and gatherings. One wonders whether this is really indiscriminate bombing and uh, the parties don't care whether it's um, a civilian or a military target, which in itself is completely pernicious, or whether civilian Yemenis are actually targeted on purpose in this conflict. Yeah, what we, what we can show about from our documentation that parties to the conflict, all of them, they don't care. Many of the violations, whether it is uh, uh, airstrikes or indiscrimin- indiscriminate ground chilling or any uh, other uh, violations, I can tell you it's very preventable. Uh, but parties to the conflict, they just do it because they don't care. They feel that they are empowered by their allies around the world and they're they will never be held accountable. Uh, and in many uh, incidents, for example, even victims or survivors or the families of the victims, uh, they keep asking why we were targeted while there is no military target even uh, closed from us. In many of the incidents that Muatana has documented since the beginning of the war, uh, there, was, there was not even a military target. So... Yes, it's indiscriminate. Uh, they don't care. But uh, whether it is in purpose or not, it's, this, is, this is very difficult to answer. Uh, we don't know, but it's very weird. And tragic. I'd like to talk more about the role of the U.S. and European powers in supporting this war and the war crimes that have been committed. We spoke about these airstrikes that have been indiscriminately bombing civilian targets that have caused the death of many people and children and and maimed people and children. Now, these coalition attacks, both in their targets and their weapons, so, for instance, cluster bombs, lack distinction and they lack proportionality. And these are the key requirements of international humanitarian law and their patent violations of international law. These attacks were made with U.S. and European-made bombs And the U.S. for many years now they've stopped has helped to refuel these coalition airstrikes. So not only have the U.S. and EU violated their own laws to sell weapons, for instance, in the U.S., this seems to be a violation of the Foreign Assistance Act and the Arms Export Control Act because there was no authorization by Congress provided. But they've also violated international law and likely aided and abetted war crimes. May you please elaborate more on how the U.S. and E.U. have supported this Stygian conflict and whether this support now seems to be in an end with recent opposition by numerous European countries and uh, the United States Congress. In one of the latest uh, reports that come out from uh, uh, Muadana uh, was the Judgment Day. It was about the incidents where we could find the remnants of weapons uh, in the ground of uh, airstrikes. It's concentrated on the airstrikes by the Saudi and Emirati coalition. And uh, from uh, the analyze for these uh, weapons, uh, they were in most of them US, some of them UK, 
One of them is Italian and uh, dozens of uh, um, civilians were killed, hundreds of civilians were killed and injured in these incidents. And five of them, uh, five of these incidents were cluster, uh, cluster bumps. Uh, so uh, it's not only that. We know that they are selling the weapons and Saudis and Emiratis are committing violations. It's, there is also evidence uh, evidence in the in the ground. And for Muatana, we also raised the case with uh, uh, one of our partners, two of our partners, the ECCHR, the European Center in Germany, and one Italian NGO in Italy about the Italian weapon. Uh, and the open was investigated uh, and the, uh, the investigation was opened uh, in this case in Italy. Uh, so we have been called by many uh, journalists and human rights defenders in European countries to ask for other remnants of weapons uh, like France, because France also are selling weapons to the Saudis and Emiratis, Spain, um, Germany, before they just uh, uh, stop selling weapons. So until now, we couldn't find uh, remnants of weapons and we and other partners are still trying to find how much these weapons are involved in the violations. Uh, which is, I mean, by default, they are involved. Um, so it is really sad that um, the European countries, UK and the US, decided to fuel the war in Yemen while they can play a very positive role to stop this suffer. And it's not only selling the weapons, it's also the political, as I said, the political support and the logistic support for their allies, which are the Saudis and, uh, and the Emiratis. And it was, it was just very uh, strange how much effort we needed just to, to have an international investigation uh, on, on violations by all parties to the conflict in Yemen that came out from the Human Rights Council. So Saudis didn't want this to be happened, and they were uh, supported by their allies, US, UK, and France in the Human Rights Council in Geneva. So finally, uh, in 2017, uh, there was a success uh, having a kind of international investigation uh, in Yemen. So it's not only one kind of, of, uh, of support. Uh, and we know that also Houthis are supported by Iran. Um, and but Houthis at the end they are an armed group, but um, their influence is limited. How much they are they are doing a lot of violations too, and they are horrible in the areas that they are controlling. But um, Saudis and Emiratis are more powerful, and their allies are more powerful, and they can just make uh, the war in Yemen go to a very different direction if they played a positive role in this. Right. I, I agree that the, the international community can impose a lot of pressure and unfortunately they have not. And you talked about logistical support um, and not just in the provision of weapons. Uh, and the United States has said that as part of its logistical support to the coalition, it has provided training in the laws of war and how to avoid uh, civilian targets um, and to um, and, and it had how to distinguish military targets. Now, it seems that the U.S. is admitting that it's providing this support, but what's really happening is that a third of uh, coalition airstrikes are targeting clearly civilian targets, like a funeral and a wedding procession and a school bus. I mean, surely the U.S. then has to admit that there's accountability for its so-called training on the laws of war to the coalition. 
Why? Well, actually, by saying this, uh, the U.S. I mean, officers, they are destroying first the reputation of their weapons uh, because it just Saudis and Emirates proves it is not clever at all weapons. So they are also destroying the reputation of their training because they have not improved at all. And only in 2018, Muatana uh, documented one more than 100 incidents where hundreds of civilians were killed and injured. So it's not a matter of training. And we have been saying this all the time. It's a matter of accountability. So they don't care. It's just not they don't know how to do it. They just don't care. And they feel they are empowered and will not be held accountable. So I keep saying if I will a military leader, I might just do it much better than Saudis and Emirates are doing it in Yemen. It's very strange. And we don't even understand why don't why don't they just avoid many violations that they are doing, which is, which is very possible. So it's just they don't care. Muatana released a report recently on um, on cultural heritage and uh, the attacks on cultural heritage in Yemen. And Yemen has such a rich, unique and ancient cultural heritage, which is displayed in its beautiful and historic architecture. And this heritage appears to have been intentionally targeted by all warring sides against international law and the protection of cultural property under the Geneva Conventions and Protocols. Numerous UNESCO World Heritage Areas, including the old city of Sana'a, have been targeted and many sites have been destroyed. Can you please elaborate more on the targeting and the destruction of Yemeni tangible and even intangible heritage and how these may be preserved? It's it's really sad what happened to the uh, to the heritage what happened to the heritage in Yemen by all parties to the conflict again it's the Saudi and Emirati led coalition but also Houthis and also other uh, armed groups that loyal whether to the uh, the coalition or the Hadi government they all targeted heritage in different um, governorates in different uh, uh, ways it's airstrike it's uh, indiscriminate ground chilling. It's attacks, uh, it's bombing also. Uh, so we documented uh, um, more than 30 cases were targeted by different parties to the conflict. And sometimes uh, also it's using these heritage sites uh, uh, like um, for military purpose. Houthis did this a lot. So in the middle of all of this, it's just like you feel, Yemenis, they feel that their heritage are is being targeted in purpose. Uh, but again, the purpose thing is very difficult to prove. But again, what's happening is very weird and why these uh, different kinds of heritage were be, uh, uh, are targeted by all parties to the conflict. Uh, so we have documented dozens of cases, but still even what's happening to the heritage in Yemen is much more than this and needs to need to be documented again. But what is most important than this, there should be also pressure uh, on this uh, uh, kind of violation from uh, in the international community. And I hope that human rights NGOs internationally and the GEE, which is the group of eminent experts, will have more attention on this. Uh, so my, we might, uh, if the the, the conflict continue, we might can uh, protect uh, what is still remain of the Yemeni heritage. How has intangible heritage been attacked, whether it has been a direct consequence or an indirect consequence of the conflict? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's some of the heritage was uh, uh, hit by airstrikes. Uh, 
Some of them were used by mili for military purpose. Some of them uh, were pumped by uh, um, uh, fanatic groups for uh, religious reasons, which is very sad because it was not exist in Yemen. So many of the heritage was have uh, a religious, uh, I mean, angle, and it was attacked for for uh, for religious uh, reasons from different local armed groups. So the heritage is just like the civilians in Yemen are victims for all parties to the conflict. But also there are some cases where um, uh, there is a cases of stolen and of using this heritage in different ways, but still not, as I said, still not documented as should be documented. Still need a lot of work in this. And the, the report that Muatana uh, um, released was one of the first reports on this issue in spite of its importance and it is the first one since the beginning of the war. So there should be much more in this, uh, much more work in this. Right, this is world heritage. The, the whole world is losing its heritage here. It's, it's historic buildings and sites and books and sculptures and it's, it's tragic. It's castles, it's, yeah, it's everything. Uh, it's um, buildings, it's uh, very uh, old homes, uh, it's, uh, it's different kinds, uh, graves sometimes. Um, it's different kinds of heritage that have been uh, uh, attacked in different ways. How has the conflict affected intangible culture? Has this conflict impeded the dissemination of Yemeni heritage? When it comes to the people, it's difficult to just change um, how do they think and to, how do they feel toward their heritage uh, in this very uh, small period. But uh, in spite of this, there were attacks that never happened before the war just because of a way of thinking of some armed groups. Uh, so this is, I mean, the tolerance uh, that is among Yemenis, it's now affected ne negatively, and this is very uh, dangerous. Uh, but I think this is linked to the war and what's happening uh, to the war, and it's linked to um, uh, organized armed groups. It's not the ordinary Yemeni people uh, in general. Uh, so I think if the war stopped and Yemenis had the chance to rebuild the state, then this will will will, will be vanished, and they will be able to rebuild uh, their relations with their historical, with their uh, ties or historical, um, I mean, culture in general. Now I'd like to discuss the economic war against Yemen. When the conflict began. Yemen was already a food insecure country. It was highly dependent on imports. And this is in part a legacy from the U.S. restructuring of the Yemeni economy from subsistence farming to dependence on the global market. And of course, the U.S. Has subsidized cheap agricultural imports. Um, and many Yemenis were working in Saudi Arabia um, as migrant workers. Now, this ensured that Yemen would be highly vulnerable to blockades on imports and attacks on its domestic and agricultural production and fisheries. And it appears that the warring sides have employed these blockades and destroyed production and fisheries as a means in the war, as, as military strategy. 
have they been doing this to starve the Yemeni population? To, to stop them from growing? Adding to all the very direct violations that Yemenis are facing daily since the beginning of the war, uh, 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 like airstrikes, indiscriminate chilling, child soldiers, landmines, uh, torture, detention, and many, many others, starvation is the worst. And I call it as a violation because Yemenis uh, are not starving, they are being starved. So, but to the conflict, yes, they are using starvation as a weapon of war. And it's not only the airstrikes, the indiscriminate and the blockade. These things uh, are very uh, important and affected uh, the situation and led to the starvation. But there is also the attitude of parties to the conflict in the ground, whether under the Houthi armed group or the areas that is controlled by Hadi government and the coalition. Uh, they are very corrupted and uh, they just destroyed the ordinary life for the daily life of Yemenis in a way that Yemenis don't have a source of income. So you know that millions of Yemenis are not receiving their salaries uh, since three years or more than uh, uh, or more now, um, and the salaries issues is is one of the main things that broke the backs of Yemenis. Uh, so besides all the things that is uh, that affected uh, uh, the economical the economic situation of Yemenis. There are uh, like the blockade and, uh, and violations in general. Uh, there is also the issue of salaries. Yemenis, uh, many, uh, the humanitarian aid is very important. It's a lifeline like for millions of Yemenis now. It's like an emergency, but it's not a solution. And even humanitarian NGOs now, they say, we lost the battle, uh, our battle in the face of famine. And for this to stop, the war should stop. So humanitarian aid will never solve this uh, the problem in Yemen. Uh, in Yemen. Uh, it will just fill the gaps. Yemenis, they need to have their lives back, to have their jobs back, so they can have, again, a source of income, so they can feed themselves uh, and to, to refresh the market in Yemen. Otherwise, I mean, the situation is going to be, I mean, worse and worse. And I can't even imagine what is worse. The millions of Yemenis are facing the, the, the danger of starvation now. Right. It's estimated to be nearly half the country. Yes. So it says, UN is saying that now 24 millions are in a certain need of access or uh, assistance. And this is even more than half the country. So Yemenis are not being paid salaries. They don't have the wages to buy food. There's the blockades to prevent the importation of food. And then there are landmines that prevent farmers from being able to use land. Yeah, so farm, farms uh, in Yemen, uh, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they face uh, um, uh, strikes from the Saudi and Emirati uh, coalition but also landmines that was planted by Houthis, mainly Houthis. Uh, we have a report about uh, the landmines in different governorates, and it was planted mainly by the, all the, uh, the incidents we have documented it was uh, by Houthis. So whenever they, they go out from any governorate, before they do this, they plant 
uh, landmines, and many of them are uh, um, personal, they call it anti-personal landmines. So it can affect uh, the, the normal people work, uh, work. Uh, I mean, working uh, in their farms, uh, um, children, women. So there are many of horrible cases where people were the, were killed or just lost uh, parts of their bodies because of these landmines. So yeah, this is one of uh, it's a it's a one of the worst direct violations, but uh, in the long term, it also affected uh, in the in the situation of of people. The problem in Yemen that if you face a, a, a violation like a, an airstrike, indiscriminate killing, landmine, and then you lost members of your families and you lost part of your body, this is not the end of the tragedy. The end, it's because it's just going to be the start because you will not have the appropriate medical care and you will not have the uh, appropriate, I mean, situation to to be able to resist this disaster. And you will lose the breadwinner, for example, and you will not have a source of income, no one to help you. So it's very uh, doubled uh, suffers on on the back of Yemenis. Muatana verified that over 75,197 kilometers in Yemen is plagued by anti-personnel and anti-vehicle landmines. These landmines have maimed numerous civilians that are de- then denied medical care and killed numerous civilians, including children, including one child at a playground. Surely when people were placing landmines, I don't know what military purpose there could be to put a landmine in a playground. Some of them are even in homes. So in the report we have, I mean, uh, published regarding the landmines, uh, we covered 33 uh, incidents uh, so 50, about 57 civilians were killed. 24 of them are children and four women. And this is only those who are killed. And then we have those who are injured. And also dozens of children uh, were among those who are injured. Yeah, so it's it's a very dirty war. Uh, it's not only to for parties to the conflict to harm each other. It's just more to harm civilians. Particularly... With landmines, I mean, we can have a peace process, we can end hostilities, but the landmines will stay. The landmines will stay and there'll be a danger. Some may not be deployed for a long time. There is a necessity to eradicate Yemen from these landmines or otherwise it doesn't, even if the hostilities cease, there's a danger for all Yemenis that they could be maimed or killed by these landmines. Right. It needs a plan. And a plan, it needs, I would not say a state, if this is very far now, but at least a shape of a state. Yemenis need to have a shape of state again to have a plan. Uh, and if there is a serious plan on this, I mean, with help from international NGOs and international community, then maybe they can make it less dangerous. But yeah, it's it's just something that uh, bump your future, not only your current life. I'd like to talk more about public health in in Yemen. There have been blockades that have denied vital medical supplies for treatments, vaccines such as for diphtheria. Hospitals have been shelled, which has destroyed uh, medical supplies and equipment. And water and sewer infrastructure has been shelled, which has led to epidemics of diphtheria and cholera. 
May you please elaborate more on how the warring parties and the international community's complicit silence has produced a rampant public health crisis in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, um, you shouldn't die from, from cholera, you know. It should be something that you can go to the hospital and get rid of it. But in Yemen, uh, Yemenis are dying from cholera now. The cholera has started to be very, very serious again. And there are cases that, I mean, I see uh, humanitarian NGOs uh, started to, to publish about uh, hundreds of people were killed, were died because of the cholera. So now the, the, the hospitals were destroyed in different ways, airstrikes, indiscriminating attacks, uh, but also um, no salaries for the, the those who are just providing the services. Um, so maybe the, the international humanitarian NGOs helped just to keep a, a kind of services uh, to try to help people in a medical level. Uh, and if there was no these humanitarian, I mean, uh, international NGOs, then Yemenis will not have any source of, of medical care. Uh, but this is very, I mean, humanitarian NGOs cannot uh, take care of uh, the whole country. It's very difficult. It needs a state. It needs a power of a state. It needs a capacity of a state. Uh, so in spite of all the work is done, uh, and this, Yemenis are still now dying because of very stupid reasons. It's, they die. And, and what is really sad about this, that some Yemenis, um, if they are sick and they want to live, to have medical care outside Yemen, for example, which is historically happening in Yemen, uh, they can't travel because Sana'a airport is closed. And we have documented many cases where there are people who was just died because they couldn't travel to have medical care outside Yemen and they had to wait until they just die. Um, we have three, um, we have different airports, uh, but uh, Sana'a airport is closed. So for those who live in Sana'a and around Sana'a, they have to travel by car for 15 hours or 10 hours uh, to go to, to the another airport and with a lot of checkpoints, a lot of risk. So many Yemenis, they can't even travel. They can't even afford it. It's a lot of money. Uh, so even to have a space for Yemenis to run from this situation and have medical care outside Yemen is not possible. And for many, many people, they can't even move uh, 10 kilometers because they don't have money or the capacity uh, to do this. So they are just dying. Everything is collapsed in Yemen. And it, and it just have its influence in everything and um, medical care and every details in our daily lives. Hmm. And, and it's all connected, right? There are attacks and then you need medical care and there's no medical care, partly because of the attacks and partly because of the blockade. And then you can't even escape. Yeah. And when it comes to the, I just, I, and I hope that people will be able to, uh, to imagine the details behind the huge numbers that they are uh, hearing from different NGOs. The details are very, I mean, tough because with the airstrikes, for example, uh, the airstrikes has killed and injured thousands. I mean, this is our documentation and maybe 
it's much more than this. Uh, so you will lose half of your family, for example, and the other half is they are injured. And you will lose your home. You will lose your source of income. And there is no one to take care of you after all of this. And I don't know what our Yemenis are doing uh, and how do they live, but maybe they don't live. They, they just, they die. We have to stay optimistic, right? Because if we're pessimistic, then I guess we've given up. They've won, right? Yeah, so the, the the humanitarian situation, the human rights situation is very horrible in Yemen, but peace in Yemen is always possible. You just said something before about people understanding how many people are affected. And this year I was thinking, there's a, and I, I can't remember the person that this quote is attributed to, but it said, and it's a it's a cruel quote, but it, it says that one person dying is a tragedy, you know, millions of people dying is a statistic. Khashoggi's cruel death at the hands of Saudi Arabia recently um, caused such an uproar, I mean, w- which it should have, but it got a lot more attention than the millions of people that are affected in, in Yemen. And it actually brought the attention to Yemen, one person dying in such a cruel manner. He had the Washington Post on his side, so maybe <laughs> that's why. And, and I'm not discounting the horrific tragedy that, that occurred, but it, it's just, um, it makes you wonder where public attention goes. Do you think that to get public attention and, and not just grab public attention, but actually sustain the public attention and gender an outcry, you need to make the stories personal and show the lives of the people so that people can remember one child's story rather than thousands of children. Is this, is this something that, from, from a media perspective, needs to occur? Um, I don't know. If there are some uh, individual stories that media has focused on in Yemen but didn't make the same effect that Khashoggi did, it's not only this uh but uh, there was uh there's a uh, there was a very i mean there was a sour in yemenis at the beginning saying uh saying the same thing you have said uh we have been dying and thousands of us millions are affected and the world did nothing and then one person just made a lot of attention but what happened just as also what you you say that uh the khashoggi murder brought a lot of attention in yemen and for for since the beginning of the war, I mean, uh, many countries just kept telling us how can we bring Houthis to the table? How can we uh, convince Saudis we are talking to them? They are not listening. But after the Khashoggi murder, when they decided to do a balanced pressure on all parties to the conflict, only in two months they succeed to send all parties to the conflict to Sweden to start a peace process. And this is why we keep saying that peace in Yemen is very possible, because there is a balance of weakness between all parties to the conflict. They are weak, they are losers, they don't have a peace plan, they don't have a project plan, so they can be pushed to go to the table. And this is what happened. Uh, so it's it's sad that uh, uh, Yemen didn't take the same attention since the beginning, but also we can't ignore the fact that this incident just brought a lot of attention in Yemen and opened uh, an opportunity to peace. Uh, it's going to be 
sad again if we lost this opportunity. I, I hope that you don't. I'd, I'd like to discuss now the plight of journalists in Yemen. Um, they're intimidated, arbitrarily detained, prosecuted uh, in courts without any assistance of legal counsel, in quick kangaroo courts, they're assassinated. Um, how can local Yemeni journalists still continue to report on events? Well, actually, you can just realize easily that Yemen is black. Yeah, no one knows a lot about Yemen. Not a lot of information is getting out of Yemen. Uh, it's because uh, of this space that is shrinking, uh, whether for journalists or civil society in Yemen by parties to the conflict. And also journalists, international journalists are not allowed to come to Yemen because of the restrictions from the Saudis and Emiratis and even the restrictions in the ground from Houthis and other uh armed groups. So it's it's a very, it's a huge disaster with a, a very little information. And yes, you know, Yemen um, was never perfect, was never good, but we used to have a space. Uh, we used to have, uh, I mean, diversity in the newspapers, in the channels, TV channels. Uh, but when Houthis uh, controlled Sana'a by force in 2014, they started to close and newspapers, and they started to attack um, media offices, and uh, and then they just made it one color. And when the other party, which is Hadi government and the coalition, controlled then uh, kicked Houthis out of 80% of Yemen and controlled these areas, they just have the same attitude regarding uh, press freedom, uh, and they didn't allow. Uh, this space to grow in the areas that they are controlling. So yes, detention also of journalists are happening by all parties to the conflict. And in the areas that is controlled by Houthis, there are more than 10 uh, journalists that have been detained since years. And we have done everything to 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 try to release them, but it never worked. And there are many details regarding that. Um, the, I mean, violations that journalists are facing, journalism, freedom of speech and journalists are facing in Yemen. And I hope that the international community will push parties to the conflict uh, to uh, to open this space for journalists, but also for civil society. Even the, the space of civil society is shrinking in Yemen. So if we just lost those tools, which is freedom of speech, journalism and civil society, then we will leave Yemen for what? For armed groups, for parties to the conflict. It's the only space that ordinary people who don't want to involve, uh, to be involved with any party to the conflict can play a role and still protect uh, a kind of, uh, make a, a kind of protection for the society. So it's very, it's going to be, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very narrow now, it's very small, but even this space, which is small, is shrinking more and more in Yemen. Is that shrinking partly due to um, the continuance of forced disappearances and arbitrary detentions under the Hattis who have taken Sana'a um, since late 2014? And, and it's not just journalists that they're targeting, but all political opponents. Or It seems even people that have not been politically involved at all have been arbitrarily detained and sentenced, even tortured in detention. Yeah, 
So the file of detention, uh, forced disappearance, and torture is very huge in Yemen, and it's uh, it's done. Uh, uh, it's a, a kind of violations that is committed by not only Houthis, it's Houthis, but also Hadi government uh, and their uh, the, the local grams, uh, local armed groups loyal to him, but also uh, the coalition, especially. Emiratis and uh, forces and security forces and armed groups loyal to them. It's a very, yeah, and we have documented it more than hundreds of incidents uh, where people were not only journalists, uh, I mean, for many reasons, have been detained, forcibly disappeared and tortured, a lot of uh, cases of torture. And we, um, in one, our, one of our statements about torture, the title was uh, multiple uh, multiple powers, same manner. So we have different political parties, different authorities, but they have the same manner uh, in many files. And one of them is the file of uh, torture, detention and forced disappearance. It's huge. And it's one of the files that have been discussed in the peace process in Stockholm. Uh, so they wanted to exchange hundreds of them. I hope this uh, will work because it just will bring hope uh, to hundreds of families. But it's even more than this. I mean, parties to the conflict should stop this kind of violation, uh, not against uh, only their what they call what they consider them their enemies. They just detain even ordinary people for stupid reasons, and then those people they. They face, I mean, forced disappearance and and torture. It's just a very sad uh, uh, file. And the families, them, uh, women, I mean, mothers, uh, wives, uh, daughters, they are suffering a lot from this file. And they have tried, some of them tried to do a, a group among them to ask for the release of their beloved ones. And these requests have fallen on silent ears. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to civil society, I mean, internationally, I feel that civil society with the human rights and humanitarian NGOs, to some extent, they, they try to do some effort in Yemen. But politically, this is, yeah, there is a lot of silence uh, because it's, uh, Yemen is not important for anyone. And it is the curse of geography. I call it. Um, but um, what is good about all of this, that the chances to stop this disaster and to go forward in peace in Yemen, especially in Yemen, is very possible. And I keep saying that Yemen can be a successful story where the international community by by peaceful tools has uh, can succeed to succeed to to stop a disaster. You just said that Yemen has the curse of geography, and and it does seem that this war, or the, or the reason that there are international parties in this war, is to destabilize the Yemeni economy, and they've just already destabilized the currency. And uh, each party, each international party, has its own. Um, particular interests, economic interests in Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't want domestic Yemeni oil production. Uh, the Emirates want, it appears, ports on the Red Sea. Is this what you meant by the curse of geography, that it's the other powers that are around Yemen? 
Yeah, it's the curse of geography because the Yemenis are surrounded. Uh, our, I mean, surrounded by Saudi Arabia and the desert. I mean, and the sea. So there are first there are not many uh, refugees to make attention to the situation in Yemen. Second, that Yemen, uh, um, I mean, the the whole world uh, get interested in Yemen through the eyes of Saudis and Emiratis. It's not because Yemen is important by itself. So that's why they, they just, whatever Saudis, they, they supported Saudis and Emiratis blindly. I mean, like the, the big countries like the US, UK and France. Uh, but what is really strange that, uh, although, as you say, there are some financial and uh, different interests for different countries in Yemen, but they all are just hand, handing Yemen to the ha- I mean, uh, to pushing Yemen to be in the hands of uh, fanatic armed groups. So if Yemen is controlled by militias and these militias kept being empowered, then Yemen cannot get benefit for be I mean, useful for anyone. Not none of these countries can have uh, a strategical, I mean, uh, financial interest in Yemen while it is controlled by fanatic armed groups. And then Yemen, if the war continue, and these fanatic armed groups kept um, uh, on being empowered, then Yemen is going to be dangerous, not only for its neighbors, but for the whole world, for the international sea. So it's very strange, uh, the attitude of these uh, countries who really uh, want to get from any uh, benefit from Yemen, why they are doing this to Yemen, uh, and how can Yemen be uh, useful while it is empowered by fanatic armed groups, you never understand. Now I'd like to address the consequences of the war on the youth of Yemen specifically. They've been denied vital medical care, safety, are starving, schools have closed, so they've been denied an education. And many, of course, have been maimed and died or been recruited into the war. And I'd like to consider this in depth. But the first question that I have um, concerns the recruitment of children into the war. It appears all warring parties have targeted children and recruited them into their war efforts. So we document um, we document also this kind of violation. Uh, it's one of the most uh, difficult um, kind of violations to document, uh, but we document it by observation also. Um, so all parties to the conflict, they are involved uh, in uh, recruiting uh, children. Uh, the highest number until now, it's uh, Houthis. Uh, uh, and what is really sad is that many of these children are used in the front lines and they sometimes they leave their families um, with a lot of health and hope. And only in three days, they come back as a dead body. So there is no training. There is no even... Uh, any process before just uh, pushing them to the front line. Uh, it's very sad if you just go to many governorates in Yemen to see the pictures of children who died in the front lines or in different uh, uh, places of, uh, of, of fighting. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, Yemenis were in a, in a were trying hard to make the education more. Uh, to educate more children, more youth, uh, 
So, and it was a battle for the Yemenis. And now it's even more complicated after the war. And I can't imagine there are some people that they don't go even to the school in Yemen, even in the cities. In the cities, most of the people will go to the school and some neighborhoods that will see that many people will go to the school. And now you can see even in the neighborhoods that is that they are not really poor and that they're supposed to be uh, educated families. You can see that some of their uh, children are not going to the school anymore. And is part of the reason that families are not letting their children go to school, is part of that due to the shelling of schools? I think one primary school was shelled twice. <laughs> it was bombed twice. Um and, uh, you know, is there is there a fear that uh, parents can't protect their children if they're at school now that schools have been targeted? Uh, thousands of schools has been targeted uh, and millions of children are not going to school anymore. But uh, because we were talking about the child soldiers, one of the reasons that uh, children are not going to school that they don't want to push their children very hard to go to the school while they don't want because they know that they can lose them and those children can just go uh, to fight. It's just like a gambling. I don't know what to call it. Uh, they blackmail their families. We don't want to go to the school and the, the families push them to go to the school. They, they are afraid to lose them uh, because they will just run away and go to fight. And this is happening a lot. It's one. It's one very detailed story. It's not. To, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. So, how is Yemen to rebuild when this generation of children is denied an education, has been starved, when a lot of them have been infected by diseases that, in this day and age, they sh should not be affected by because of the attacks on the clean water in Yemen. How is this generation to rebuild? Well, actually, the war first should stop and then uh, to to just uh, avoid more, I mean, more, the, to avoid the disaster to be even worse. And then how this, how we are going to recover from this war in different many levels, this is a very open question. Uh, and it needs a lot of work. It needs, as I said, a shape of state. Uh, and I don't know how much time we need just to to reco recover uh, from all the damage that happened because of this war. But imagine if this war didn't stop, then the recover uh, issue is not even there. And, and it's just exacerbated. And even before the war, there was the... I mean, actually, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still open because I, I couldn't find any information on it, but the Yemeni Children's Parliament, I was very um, impressed and interested to find out that since 2000, children have had their own parliament and in Yemen, they've been able to release shadow reports on human rights situations. They've been very politically astute and active. It was one. It was one of the very successful projects, and it just gave an indicator that uh, how much Yemen was just opened to uh, to better chances in the life. So maybe some people they think that is this is the situation in Yemen, and it's like this all the time. No, we used to have a, a shape of life. 
we used to have civil society at some level. We have to use diversity in media. We have to have, we used to have life uh, in different ways. It was not perfect. We, many people were poor, uh, but never starvation. And uh, so we used to have elections, either even if it is fake. But still, we used to have elections. We used to have members in the parliament. We have, uh, we used to talk a lot about the law and the constitution and uh, how it should be improved. And it's just all of this now is just like a dream. It's very far. In four years. In four years, everything has been decimated. Yes. While the international community has known about this and nothing. Yeah, what is really sad about this that the international community in Yemen can do a lot. They can they can affect positively. They can stop this. It's not a, a kind of disaster that they have nothing to do with. They can do a lot to stop it, but they just until now choose uh, not only to sell weapons, uh, but to empower their allies who are destroying Yemen. Now, in, in general, consequences of conflict tend to be exacerbated for women who have their rights constrained, uh, including being forced to marry earlier and taken away from school and suffer more gender-based violence. I understand that in Yemen, women have been staging protests and have been quite politically active. How has the conflict affected women's rights in Yemen? And has there been a distinct difference in areas under different control? So, for example, in the child, child marriage issue, yeah, there was a lot of attempt from the civil society to set a law that determined the age of marriage. To that extent, the battle was improved. Uh, and now all of this is gone. And the, the, uh, as I see from reports from uh, Oxfam and other NGOs that uh, it has increased a lot, uh, the child marriage, and this is normal in a case of war. And the war is very masculine, you know. So the war, it just gives more jobs to more men. Uh, women, they can work more, they can have more uh, leadership when in a, in a case of peace. They can play a role in a civil society. In Yemen, most of the civil society is leaded by women. Uh, with their human rights, uh, humanitarian NGOs, many of them are led by women. And they used to have, um, uh, I mean, a very good role in the uh, in different levels. It was not perfect. I just, I don't want to show that as though the situation was perfect. It's just comparing to now. But the situation was not perfect at all, but there was a space. And yeah, so the Yemeni women now, uh, many, many of those great Yemeni women who used to play a very active role in the society uh, are just in home doing nothing. They lost the tools that they can use. Uh, and, you know, as any war, the, the war will push women to do more uh, duties, uh, to work in things that is uh, that they didn't use to work in. Uh, in the past, for for example, but this is not an indicator for uh, development. It's just they had to do it, and I can't even consider it like kind of improvement. The war has no good shape. We were talking before about how 
the U.S. has been hypocritical in the sense that on the one hand, it provided aid to Yemen. On the other hand, it then provided a lot of assistance to the coalition, providing military equipment and military training. But the U.S. is also intentionally targeting Yemenis. And it has been targeting Yemenis before the conflict. The U.S. began drone strikes in Yemen in 2002 and has since then conducted over 111 strikes with over 546 deaths, including the September 2nd, 2012 killing of 19 civilians, including three children and one pregnant woman, and more were injured in that heinous attack. The U.S. and Yemeni governments haven't released any information on who was targeted, who's hit, how many civilians have been injured or killed, or, or taken any responsibility for the deaths of these individuals, citing national security concerns. These strikes have been cruel. They're arrogant. And they're also logically fallible that they're so counterproductive to any counterterrorism intention that the U.S. may have, because how can you not just engender hostility and distrust of the U.S. when these these bombs come from the sky, when people are so in need and instead just just attack them? Yeah, so there are many uh, uh, cases of drones where civilians were killed and injured in Yemen. It has been documented by Muadana, by different NGOs. And in many of these incidents, uh, it can be avoided by, for example, detaining those who are targeted. And in many incidents, it's not even clear who is targeted. Uh, The only clear about the drones, whether in Obama or uh, Trump administration, is the civilian harm for us. And regarding the result of this, I mean, if if, if the drones is a strategy to, to defeat Al-Qaeda, uh, today Yemen is controlled by fanatic armed groups and Al-Qaeda more than ever. It's not only by drones. It's by it's bec- it's not only because of drones. It's because of many reasons, but it's an indicator that the drones didn't help uh, um, to counter terrorism in any level. So, for example, we used to have to do uh, with uh, we were in Montana with Open Society Foundation. We visited many governorates in Yemen. Uh, to to document the civilian harms of drones. By then, in 2013 and 2012, um, there was many areas was just there's no Qaeda and Al Qaeda are in the mountains. And we have we 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 went back after the war to some of these areas, and we found that those areas areas now are are controlled by Al Qaeda more than ever. It's not because of the only the drones. It's because also of the secretarian nature of Houthis, of the collapse of the state, uh, and because of the drones. It's not the only reason. So it, it indicates that uh, defeating Al-Qaeda by using violence is not working. Right. I, I read your report on the drone strikes, and the thing that my mind keeps going back to, that you have quotes from people that you interviewed and they are chilling. One quote from a boy said that he expected the U.S. to come with aid and education, and instead the U.S. came with drone strikes that ended up maiming him and killing his family members. And another quote said that in their village that they had nothing modern 
And then the only modern thing that came into the village was the drone that ended up um, maiming and killing people in the village. And there's just no sense to it. Yeah, and the sentence of this child um, who said that we expected education or uh, not weapons, I keep using it on all my advocacy work. Uh, whenever I, I'm asked about the um, about the weapons, selling, uh, about the countries that they are selling weapons uh, to 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 different parties to the conflict in Yemen. Uh, that yes, Yemenis uh, are expecting from the U.S., from the U.K., from France uh, to 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 send them re things related to education, to technology, um, things that reflects the civilization, civilization and development of these countries. But instead of this, they decided to send weapons. So many Yemenis, uh, they don't know these countries. They have never been to America. They have never been to to UK, but they know these countries through the weapons that destroy their homes and kill their families. It just doesn't seem to be any sense in this. I mean, even even with cruel intentions, as you said, it just doesn't seem to be any sense that anyone's um, really benefiting from what's happening. And I, I believe there was a quote from one person in one of your reports that asked the question, is Yemen just a training ground to see how these weapons work, to, to test these weapons on people? This is the message that many people uh, received. And it happens with the drones and it happens with the airstrikes, by the way. They say it. Uh, I mean, the airstrikes from the Saudi and Emirati coalition. And, you know, the drones, it was used uh, even in the in the internal conflict between tribes in Yemen. Uh it was used in a very, I mean, uh, uh, stupid way, if I just said. Um, not to feed a guard, really. It's just a kind of corruption in the ground. And uh, this corruption, left, left, uh, um, I mean, uh, uh, reflect itself in the corruption of just leading the, the drones war. So it could very well be just using the Yemeni population as, test subjects this is what people feel because people they when they when they when they compare between what supposed the drone is doing and what is the result they feel that there is no result it's not defeating al-qaeda so they just had this feeling that they are uh, experiment and then they are just the yemen is used like a ground uh, for this weapons to be tested. So you have been working with Motwana since uh, 97, you said, um, and you've been personally affected. You were detained in Yemen. How has the war affected you personally? Motwana, we are a team of 71 people uh, and half of us are women. Um, one of the main things uh, that Motwana is facing and uh, I am facing uh, like the leader of Muatana, is the hate campaigns. It's just the hate campaigns from all parties to the conflict, and they have their armies in the uh, internet and everywhere, uh, just trying to convince people that we are biased. And then, so the first thing they try they try to do is the hate campaigns. 
But with the time, people start to understand that this, these are only hate campaigns and then they can understand our work in the ground and then um, they need time to, to understand that human rights work in Yemen is a, is a new thing. It's not, uh, especially the, the, the type of work we are doing, like documenting and depending in the international humanitarian law, international law for human rights. And yes, me and my husband and colleague, we both founded Muadana. And we have, beside the hate campaign, we faced uh, uh, detention also. Uh, my husband, uh, he was detained more than once. I was beaten once by Houthis and detained for two hours. But lately, in my way out of Yemen, uh, in, in last May, or June, I forgot now, uh, I was detained with my uh, husband and colleague in the airport, in the Yemeni airport by the Saudis. And then uh, we have been released after 12 hours uh, because of the very high uh, international and internal pressure. But it makes it very difficult and risky for us to travel uh, to do our advocacy by, uh, work and go back. So since then, since 2018, it's months until now, I had to be outside Yemen, uh, nowhere in my bag uh, to do our uh, my advocacy work. In a normal situation, I will go back to my home and then travel again, but I can't do this. So I had to travel all the time. Um, and, you know, being in the middle of all of this, it just, it just makes you cope and sometimes you even forget how to explain how, how you are suffering from this situation. So now you're prevented from going back to Yemen? For it's not prevented. Yeah, it's not prevented. It's very risky. And I had uh, many very important advocacy visits right. in the US, in Geneva, in Netherlands. And uh, so uh, if I go back, I will not be able to go out again because it's very risky. So I had to go to be out all of this time, yeah, just to finish the advocacy work. And I don't know when it is going to finish. So now you must travel all over and live out of a suitcase. Yes, and it's really bad. Quite disorienting too, I imagine. Yeah, but um, uh, we are still lucky because we still can play a role, a positive role against the war. A very positive role. I'm, I'm Thank you. A very positive role. And um, what you've done for Yemen and Yemenis has been incredible in your, both your you. domestic work and uh, your international advocacy, including at the UN in, in Geneva. Thank you. And uh, also our team, uh, many of them have been detained in different periods by different parties to the conflict in the ground. The last one has been detained by Houthis in Al-Hudaydah for, for 45 days and he was forcibly disappeared and then he was released also. So even our team is a very big responsibility for us and we want them to keep being safe. And what does the international community need to, and I'm talking not about the government, well, yes, about the governments too, but also so also the people. What do they need to understand about Yemen and this conflict in order to be able to provide pressure on their own governments to do something? Because there is, and, and you've mentioned this before, there's this a scarcity of information as to what is going on in Yemen. What people need first is to know what's happening, you know, uh, because there is a very little attention in Yemen. So there are many people, they don't know what's going on in Yemen. And 
again, after the Khashuk murder, there is more attention. And I can feel that there is more voices just against the war in Yemen. And I was surprised, for example, I was in a visit in uh, to Paris just days ago. And then I had a video, small video with uh, w- uh, with one of their media. And until now, it's more than one million view and more than 30,000, I mean, share. So uh, I told myself that really what people need is to know because they were very, I mean, uh, shocked but about what's happening in Yemen, saying this is not supposed to be happened and Macron should stop sending weapons to Saudis and Emiratis. But people should keep the pressure. And I hope that people internationally, I mean, all, and all over the world, will just make external affairs as part of their interest and as part it, as a part of their tenders, whether to elect uh, this party or not, or to elect this president or not. They cannot just be focusing in their domestic things. It's very important and it's their right, but they have also handled a responsibility to know what their states are doing internationally outside their countries and to make pressure on this. If they are, if are selling weapons, then they should say no. If they are making allies with dictators around the world, then they should say no. It's a responsibility. Yes, I agree. I agree. Because what our what our governments do, we're all complicit in, and we ca- we can't just turn our backs away. Even every day that we work and we pay taxes, our dollars go towards supporting these bombs that fall on individuals. And Yemen is actually very close to us in the sense that we are part of this conflict all over the world. And it's not just the U.S., it's, as you said, the UK and France, Germany, Australia, New Zealand. Everyone's been involved in some way, either by selling uh, weapons or helping logistically with the coalition or by helping logistically with the drone strikes. That's right. And the states, they, for example, in the level of selling weapons, they keep saying we need more money for our people, we need more jobs for our people. But I am sure that if people know what's happening uh, on Yemen, they will never ask for uh, jobs over the blood of innocent people. I'm sure that ordinary people will not accept this and they will refuse it. They just need to know and then they have to act. And now I'd like to ask, what is something that you would like to tell people that I may not have asked you in this interview? I just want to tell people uh, that uh, what's happening in Yemen is the worst humanitarian disaster in the world, but it's not uh, uh, a natural disaster. It's a man-made disaster. So the solution toward this disaster is not sending food, it's not sending aid, it's to put pressure in their countries, uh, to put pressure in, part, in, in parties of the conflict to stop the war. And peace in Yemen is very possible. It's the, it's the worst humanitarian disaster, but the peace is very possible and they can have a lot of influence on it. Yemen is a country where Whenever there is a effort, you can see the result. Uh, I don't know if this is everywhere, but it's happening in Yemen. And we can see if we are a local NGO can do a very small little uh, impact, then you can imagine if there is uh, um, um, an effort internationally. It can do a lot uh, of effort. Uh, 
can do a lot of impact, I mean. And so it's it's between our hands to do some difference uh, on the disaster in Yemen. And I hope uh, that uh, we will not lose it. Oh, I hope so too. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today, Radia. I'm very appreciative that you took the time to discuss these issues. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.